The readings, Mark 1, uh, starting at verse 40, and then going through into chapter 2 to verse 12. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Sorry, I've missed a bit of my... So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Jane, thank you so much uh, for reading for us. Uh, Before I start, let's uh, just take a moment uh, to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, uh, by your spirit you would uh, take the words that you have given me. Uh, I pray that uh, you would uh, quicken all of our minds, uh, you would soften our hearts. Uh, I pray that uh, uh, you would uh, speak to us, minister to our hearts, encourage us, challenge us, uh, correct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I I wonder what you would say the most pressing needs of the world are today. Uh, Pressing needs uh, that we have uh, individually. Now, you can uh, search on Google, as I did. Other search engines are available uh, for most pressing needs. And uh, there was a rather depressing list. Uh, Catastrophic uh, pandemics, uh, risk from artificial intelligence, uh, nuclear war, uh, and uh, climate change. So some really large uh, existential crises, uh, needs pressing in from all sides. Uh, But for many of us, uh, perhaps we see um, our most pressing needs as being uh, more immediate. Uh, We may have uh, health problems uh, that are causing us uh, great physical pain. Uh, There may be mental uh, turmoil caused by broken relationships uh, or the anguish of uh, challenging circumstances and dreams that have been tattered. Or we maybe find ourselves underneath the weight of uh, crushing loneliness. 
And as you look at your own life, as you look at uh, uh, your own life or as you look at the world around you, what might you have thought the most pressing needs that we have are? Uh, And as Mark writes his gospel, uh, he tells us, uh, all of us, whether we're believers or we're not believers, that our most pressing need is for a king. Not Charles, but the king of kings. So as we come to this passage, I just want us to see a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, I want us to see uh, humanity's most pressing need is revealed. And secondly, uh, we're going to see the king who forgives. So firstly, humanity's uh, most pressing need. Now, as Mark uh, opens his gospel in his very first words, he tells us, doesn't he, uh, in no uncertain terms, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God. He tells us that in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, Jesus comes with a message, doesn't he, uh, with a declaration. Jesus comes preaching, uh, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God has come near. And this kingdom that comes, it reveals the heart of the king that comes, King Jesus. King Jesus has come not for earthly conquest, uh, not to subjugate a people, not to take by force the things that the people have, And it's not to exploit the weaknesses of the people for the king's own benefit. The motivation of the one true king is unlike any earthly king that the ancients knew. And the lengths to which this one true king will go far exceeds anything that we've seen of any earthly king. In fact, the heart of King Jesus is set on our most pressing need. So let's look at uh, the healing firstly uh, of the paralyzed man, uh, which you'll find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, just in case you've closed your Bibles. Now, as Jesus comes to Capernaum, uh, the news of the amazing teaching and the miraculous healings, they've spread like wildfire, haven't they, uh, across the land. And Mark tells us that crowds have gathered uh, in huge numbers. Uh, And it's worth just noticing uh, that when Mark tells us that the crowds have gathered, uh, the crowds are there, when he tells us this uh, in his gospel, he's telling us that not that we would be impressed Not that we would be impressed that Jesus has attracted uh, large crowds, or that in some way that's a a, a validation of his ministry. Rather, the way that Mark writes of the crowds in his gospel is to alert us to the fact that they're a barrier, they're an obstacle, they're an impediment that stops the people who really want to get to Jesus uh, from getting to him. Now, in in chapter 2, verse 2, we read that the people are indeed everywhere. The house is full. The doorway's blocked. The people are crowded all around the house. And it's not because Jesus is performing any miraculous wonders at that point, but because he's doing the very thing that he promised that he'd come to do, which is he's preaching to them. And what do we see? Mark introduces five friends, four of them able-bodied, carrying one that wasn't. And in verse 3, we're told that the man was paralysed. Now, with no way through the crowds, the doorway blocked, no way to get in, um, they had a problem. And these are the sorts of friends that we all want, aren't they? These are the sorts of friends that we all want. They'd clearly been on an SAS training course, and they were determined to get their friend before Jesus. They wanted their friend to be made physically well. Now, without regard for the uh, house owner, uh, they climbed up on the roof, they dug out the roof, Uh, Pete would be mortified, they dug a hole in the roof, and they lowered their friend down before Jesus. 
Mission accomplished. You can just imagine, can't you, their relief and their joy as their friend is lowered before Jesus and they see Jesus turn to their friend, fully expecting a miraculous healing. Their paralyzed friend uh, who couldn't feed himself, he couldn't dress himself, even the most basic of his needs to be toileted and to be washed, well, he needed other people to do that for him. This man's dignity was non-existent and his dependency on other people was the very thing that defined who he was. For all the world, this man's disability appears to be his most pressing need. And you can imagine, can't you, the room hushes as a light streams in from the hole in the roof and Jesus turns to the man. And the first word out of Jesus' mouth is son. There's great affection in that word. Now the word that Jesus uh, uses there, technon, as uh, translated as son, it has the emphasis of dear child, my dear child. Jesus looks at the man and by his words we can see that Jesus' heart is absolutely full of compassion, of love and of care for this man laying before him. But what Jesus says next is not at all what the people were expecting. Jesus now speaks of this man's greatest need. Jesus knows that the greatest need of the man is to be known by God, to know God, and to be brought into a right relationship with God. And so because of that, we see in verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus makes this pronouncement and there are two responses. Firstly, the confused. His friends and those focusing on the man's physical need must have thought, wait, what? 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 Whoa, Jesus, just stop. Look at this man. Look at his broken body. What this man needs, what he really needs is for you to repair his body, not to forgive him his sins. His most pressing need, Jesus, surely is physical restoration. And here we can see something of a problem even today, can't we? Uh, We can think that the challenges that are around about us are the ones that we should be really leaning into. The collection of litter from the roadside, uh, the provision of equipment and resources for our children's education, the funding of safe spaces for victims of domestic abuse, the provision of effective dry houses for recovering addicts, These are all good and important things. They're incredibly valuable to communities and to individuals. And it's good and right that as Christians we should be involved in serving in those areas. But they are not the main thing that we as Christians are called to do. The main thing that we as Christians are called to do is to point people to the one who can meet our greatest need, that of our estrangement from God, to help people see that their most pressing need is their rebellion against God. And that's what we see here. Here, Jesus looks at the man who's paralyzed and recognizes that his most pressing need is to be made right with God. Even though by worldly standards, it appears that the man's most pressing need is to be healed physically. Now, if some are confused, others 
are outraged. Take a look at verses 6 to 7. We read this. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now this second group actually has it right, don't they? They know that this man's greatest need, his most pressing need, is to have a right relationship with God. But they, the teachers of the law, are experts in matters of religion. They're experts in theology. They are, if you like, uh, people who have a starred double first from King's College, Cambridge. They know everything about theology. And they know that the prerogative that Jesus is claiming, namely forgiving sins, is something that belongs only to God. So what Jesus has said can mean one of two things. Either the presence of the kingdom, which Jesus has been speaking about, must usher in the forgiveness of sins. But the question is, how? We'll wrestle with that later. Or what Jesus is saying is, as one theologian said, a conceited act of blasphemy. And if you dig into Leviticus 24:16, you'll see that the charge for that is death. The first group are confused. The second group are outraged. And Jesus knows it. Now take a look at verse 8, uh, where Mark tells us that he knew their hearts. He knew that they thought that Jesus had overstepped the mark. That Jesus had claimed something that was beyond him. They're thinking, sure Jesus, you can say that this man's sins are forgiven. But no one can really see if that's true. And so he responds, doesn't he? With a question in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. And Jesus heals the man. Makes his body whole and the man leaves and everyone rejoices, saying that they haven't seen anything like this before. But this isn't a naked display of power. This isn't just Jesus saying, look what I can do. The reason for making the man's body whole is to demonstrate to those watching and for for us now reading that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. We see that in verse 10. We're not left guessing for the reason for this miracle. Jesus does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. And the question is how? And as I said, we'll come back to that. Now let's turn our eyes, secondly, to the healing of the man with leprosy. And we read that in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Now here we're presented with another man whose condition defines him. In uh, verse 40, Mark tells us, that a man with leprosy approaches Jesus. Now, in Leviticus, there are clear rules about how people with contagious leprous skin diseases should behave. If you had a skin infection, you had to go to the priest. The priest was essentially a public health officer. Uh, He would examine the infection and rule on it. Now, if he determined that it was leprous, then that person had to live outside the city walls. According to Leviticus 13, they had to wear torn clothes. They had to have their hair hang loose, had to live alone, to cover their top lip and to cry out if anyone was nearby, unclean, unclean. All of this to keep them away from other people and prevent the spread of the disease. So the lepers 
were completely cut off from the people of God. They were completely cut off from access to God, excluded from the temple, excluded from all worship. Now, if it was today, the leper couldn't jump on the bus and get to Tame. He couldn't enter the shops at Long Crendon. He wouldn't be able to get a haircut at Freestyle. He'd be excluded from the medical center. No one would invite him to dinner. No one would even approach him with a warm smile and shake his hand. He couldn't join us for services here. He'd live outside of the village in the wilderness between Brill and Luggershall. But this man, this man, resolves to disregard all the rules and presents himself before Jesus. He's broken and with complete contrition comes before Jesus on his knees begging, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's in verse 40. The camera swings now from the leper to Jesus. And in the NIV it translates it as uh, Jesus being indignant The indignation uh, or the anger here refers not to Jesus' feelings towards the man for breaking the rules. Rather, it's the indignation at the ravages of the disease, its corrupting influence. This is not the way that Jesus made all things. But due to the rebellion of man against God, sickness broke into the world. And as a result, Jesus is angry with the sickness But he has incredible passion for the man. Uh, How do we know that? Take a look at the way in which Jesus engages with the man. Uh, There is uh, the healing that we'll read about that uh, comes from Jesus. But this isn't a healing that's delivered like the Amazon driver delivers packages to my house. The Amazon driver drops the parcels on the doorstep, rings the bell, and then goes. It's very efficient. It's very tidy, but it's very cold. That's impersonal. And Jesus' healing here is not like that at all, is it? Jesus comes to the leper, and we see that Jesus touches the leper. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't need to touch people to heal, to heal them. Uh, we saw that with the, the man who was paralyzed. Now, the leper, remember, lived outside the city in the wilderness. He'd not known the touch of another person, maybe for years. Jesus knows this. And so he reaches out and touches the man and speaks the sickness out and the healing in. The man is made clean. And it's worth noticing that the disease and the sickness doesn't come onto Jesus. Jesus isn't made unclean by touching the leper. Rather, the power of Jesus The goodness of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, is such that the sickness's corrupting effects are melted away, evaporated. They're dispelled by the touch and the power of Christ. Now you can imagine the significance to the leper of having Jesus touch him. The touch of Jesus to one whose life has been defined by exclusion, by revulsion, by rejection. The one who has been made invisible by the community is suddenly visible to Christ. By touch, Jesus meets his medical needs. 
but does so in a way that also meets this man's emotional needs. So it's truly beautiful. Now having healed the man, Jesus points him to the need to be reintegrated into the community, uh, to enable him to re-enter the temple, to once again come to a place of worship. The man's most pressing need was to be able to once again be able to come before God. So do you see, in both of these people, their greatest need was to be made right with God, to be able to worship God. It wasn't their physical needs. Now, we touched on the question of uh, forgiveness. How is that forgiveness possible? Uh, and that's our second point, which is, it's the king who forgives. Now, uh, as we look at these verses, we can see something of the problem that exists between man and God. Yep. Uh, that because humanity has turned away from God, that the world has been broken, fractured, that the relationship between us and God has been spoiled, and that life is now marked by difficulty, by disease, and by death. And Jesus comes along and says that now it's possible, because the kingdom of God is near, for our relationship with God to be restored, for that to be made right that the price of our rebellion against God is going to be dealt with, it's going to be paid. That through the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed King, that the healing of the broken relationship between humanity and God can be made. Now we know, don't we, that, uh, that there's a gap that exists between humanity and God, that the relationship isn't the way that it is supposed to be. See, every religion or school of philosophy says that it's possible, it is possible, they say, through things that we can do, things that we can do to make things right with God. That's all the other religions and schools of thought in the world. Only Christianity says that there is no way, there is nothing that we can do to fix the gap that exists between us and God, that we cannot by ourselves repair the damage to that relationship. It's just too big. And in Mark chapter 2, the teachers of the law had it right, didn't they? No one, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And it's for two reasons. Firstly, because all sins are against God. And secondly, sin is infinitely grievous to God. So let's uh, just take a quick look at those things. Uh, In our reading, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Our teachers know that it is the one who's been sinned against, he's the one that can forgive. So how can Jesus say to this man, your sins are forgiven? To help us look inside that question um, with the teachers of the law, let's uh, just do a small thought experiment. Uh, imagine Nathan is running an S-Club event. Yep. Uh, the children have all been asked to draw a picture of their last holiday. They're all working on it, all quietly, working away. But then, little Jane notices that Samantha's picture, oh, it's much better than hers. Yeah, lots of colour, lots of curly bits, it's a much better picture. So, in jealousy, when Samantha's not looking... Jane scribbles all over Samantha's picture. Little Samantha is beside herself. Nathan, 
wanders over, looks at what has happened, and says to Jane, the child that scribbled all over the picture, you're forgiven. Now you can imagine Samantha's going, what? What? Wait a minute, I'm the one that's been wronged. Surely it's for me to forgive. Nathan, you can't just wander up and forgive. You see, it's only the person who's been sinned against who can forgive. So why is it that Jesus says your sins are forgiven? You see, because as God looks down, each one of us is his. We are his. So no matter who is hurt, offended or mistreated, we have wronged not just them, but the one that loves them and the one to whom they belong. So all sin, all rebellion against God and against one another is ultimately and completely rebellion against God. I wonder if we sometimes lose sight of that. Uh, Secondly, we tend to think of our rebellion against God, sin, as a small thing. But it isn't. When we act badly against anyone, when we lie, when we cheat, when we uh, mislead, when we gossip, when we get angry, when we withhold good things from others, we are ultimately acting against God. God who has fashioned with great care and with great patience each one of us. He is the one who's knitted us together in the womb and set us in our allotted time and in our special place. So when we rebel against others, we're marring and defacing the priceless work of God. We're hurting and damaging the ones that God cares about and loves deeply. Those whom God sees as being infinitely precious and infinitely beautiful. See, our rebellion against others is the defacing of God's masterpiece. So our rebellion against others is actually rebellion against God, and it's not a small thing. So the dilemma's clear, isn't it? We've broken our relationship with God, and it's beyond our ability to repair it. So what's to be done? Uh, In our reading, we I don't know if you saw that, there's a glimpse of how our our relationship can be repaired. Uh, In our reading, we saw how Jesus healed the leper. See, the leper was the one who was on the outside. He was in the wilderness. Uh, Like us, if you like, because of our contamination by our sin, unable to come close to God. But Jesus came into the world and he beckoned us to come closer, to come near, to come to the king. And that as we come close, as we turn away from our selfish way of living, away from our rebellion against God, in other words, as we repent and come to Jesus, trusting in him as the true king, that he makes it possible for us to be made right with God, to be made clean. And here we see an echo of what this is like, don't we? As Jesus brings the leper in, the work of making the leper clean is done by Jesus. And because of that, then the leper is able to move from the wilderness into the temple courts to be close to God. But to do that, to do that for the leper, we see in verse 45 that Jesus found himself out in the wilderness, outside in the lonely places. There's been an exchange. The leper has been made clean and brought in, 
But Jesus has taken the penalty and been cast out into the wilderness. Now, as we stand on this side of the cross, we know what that looks like. We know what it is to make us clean, the price that has been paid for our rebellion. It was Christ who had left the throne room of heaven. The one true king puts down his crown and came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. And rather than hearing from his father in heaven, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of his life, Jesus had a crown of thorns driven into his skull, a crown that was rightly ours. He was stripped, he was beaten, he was taken outside the city to a lonely place to die the death that we deserve, dying in our place. Jesus was completely cast out so we could be made clean and brought in. Jesus was willing to do that for us. The price we could never pay, paid in full. And to close and briefly, I just want us to... uh, just to see two things by way of um, uh, application or working these truths into our hearts. A couple of questions for us to think about. Firstly, uh, is there joy? Is there a joy in our salvation? And secondly, are we willing to trust God in all things? So firstly, is there a joy in our salvation? Did you notice the leper when he's made clean? He just goes out, doesn't he? Completely transformed, uh, utterly delighted, amazed by what has been done for him, glorifying God. That's incredible, isn't it? And this is the same thing that's happened to us. We've been moved from uh, death to life. And I wonder, is that a joy that's real in our hearts as we look at the way the man with leprosy responded? And what does he do? He goes out and he just can't help but tell people. He can't help but tell people. That's a... Encouragement to us, you know, we too have experienced the same truth. It's true for us as it was true for the man with leprosy. And so there's a call to respond, to tell people, to respond in evangelism, both in words and in deeds. Uh, Secondly, there's a call uh, that our lives should be completely transformed. I mean, what a transformation for the leper out in the wilderness, right back into the heart of God's people. What a transformation. Now for some of us, that might be a really obvious transition that we've experienced in our lives. Uh, We heard uh, today of uh, Dave who was far from God, far from God, rebelling against God and yet God brought him in. And we've heard tonight of Martin who was, if you like, closer to God, growing up in a Christian home. It might look as if they've had long and different journeys, but still the trajectory of their journeys is the same. Yeah, there's an ongoing work of transformation in their lives as God works, works in them. And I just wonder for us, do we see that as we look back at our own lives? Do we see that line of growth in our Christian life? Or has it plateaued? Have we slipped back? Where are we? This is not about uh, guilt tripping us, yeah, making us feel bad. Yeah, I just want us to see the enormity of what has happened to this man with leprosy, because that is what has happened to us. From the outside excluded, brought in. And that's, that's a truth that is ours to claim. 
if you look at this man with leprosy, how he responds, you think, oh, I'd like to do that. You have all the tools, you have all the truths, and more than that leprous man had. And so if we can just pray about these truths, if we can meditate on these truths, we can allow these truths to settle on our hearts, we will be transformed. That power will be unleashed in our lives. Secondly, uh, are we willing to trust God in all things? Especially when it doesn't seem to make sense for us. Uh, to the paralyzed man, it's, uh, well, it was an answer to a prayer he hadn't really asked for. Yeah, he hadn't asked to be healed. Didn't seem to be his most pressing need. I just wonder, are we at times uh, dismissive or not careful about the things that God is doing in our lives? Do we miss the big moments because we are so busy with the things that we want God to do rather than seeing necessarily the things that he has been doing in our lives? And a great way to just to see that is uh, just a journal, scribble something down in 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 your diary uh, as you go through things that you see God doing. You may not know why he's done the things that he's done, but scribble them down. And then over time, look back, just reflect and dwell upon the things that he has been doing in your life. Okay, so do look back and see what God has, has done and be thankful for those those answered prayers that we didn't even pray for. Recognize his work in your lives. Uh, secondly, I wonder, do we, uh, when we come to petition God, do, do we come in the way that the leper did? Is that the state of our hearts with contrition, with humility? If you are willing. That's what the leper says. If you are willing. Yeah, it's an incredible declaration of trust, isn't it? That even if you don't give me the things that I ask for, I am going to keep on trusting you. I'm going to keep on walking with you. I don't understand why this has happened, but I'm going to keep on trusting in you. Or I wonder, does our walk with Christ wax and wane in line with the way that God is meeting our apparent needs? Are we joyful when he's doing the things that we want him to do? And are we distant from him when he's working in places that we haven't seen? And the leper says, uh, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. Be clean. I wonder, do you believe that for yourself with the challenges in your own life? Are you plagued with a persistent or besetting sin? Are there things, habits, practices that you just cannot seem to shake away? Are you locked up in a jail of your own making as you believe that there are certain things that Jesus can't or won't clean you of? Know this, know this. There is nothing that you have done thought, said, attitudes you've had, patterns of behavior that uh, you are embedded in. There's nothing that puts you outside the reach of the love of God. God can make you clean. I wonder, are you holding back from him because of fear of rejection? He is willing Or maybe you fear that you're in a hole that is too deep 
It's just too deep for him to reach you or even for him to want to reach you. I am willing. Be clean. If that's you, look to the cross. His love for you is as deep as the ocean and it's as high as the skies. Look to the cross. His love is not abstract. It's real. He's paid for it with his blood. He has forgiven it. He's forgiven it all. If you would but just trust in him. Look at the resurrection. The power that raised Christ from the dead lives in our hearts. It's in our hearts of all of those of us who believe. And that power can make you clean. He is willing. Are we willing, however, to bring it all before him? To surrender those things? To lay all that brokenness down at the foot of the cross? If you do that, if you do that, you will be met with Christ by his spirit. You will know that cleansing forgiveness. You will know that power unleashed in your heart. So come to him. He's willing. Are we? So submit to the king. Repent and believe. Trust the king who knows our deepest needs. The king who forgives and the one who makes clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much that you sent your son, the King of Kings. I thank you that uh, through uh, his work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and through all of that, that we can be adopted as your children. That we can be clean. Thank you that uh, the King of Kings knows our most pressing needs to be made right with you. So help us as we journey through the week ahead. And not to uh, be fearful, uh, but to be rejoicing in the truth that you have made us clean. Give us the strength that we need to shed your light in the dark crevices of our hearts, to surrender to you those things that are enslaving us, and to trust that you will meet with us, that we will know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.